All right, welcome to Now This Is Podcasting. I'm your host, Connor, and I'm here with Calvin. Greetings. And uh, this is uh, one I'm pretty excited to do. It's one of my favorite directors. Uh, we're talking about Tenet today, directed by Christopher Nolan. This came out in 2020, and it's so weird to me to think about it. This was supposed to be the movie that, like, saved theaters. Remember that? Yeah, that's that's literally, like, what I was going to say. Is like, yeah, this was, this was the movie. I think it was, like, the only thing playing in a lot of places for a long time. Right, and I remember... I remember I was still not like feeling comfortable. I didn't want to like go out. I wasn't sure how crowded it was going to be. And it turned out to not be very crowded at all. Uh, this movie had a budget of $200 million and it made 363. So I think they were hoping for something closer to like six or eight million, a hundred million. You should be, you should be doubling your money with a budget like that. I mean, they talked about how Blade Runner 2049 was a critical failure because it didn't make as much money as they thought it was going to be. Not because it didn't make back its money, but because its projection uh, was a lot loftier. Right. And I just think about other movies like, uh, like Dune came out just in at the end of 2021 and it had a, a, a pretty big budget. I think it was like 165. It made 400 million so far, but that's wow. still like it's still not. It, it, it wasn't like I think people thought like this will be the movie to get people back in seats. Like this will be the movie to save cinema. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't. It was fucking Spider Man that is like <laughs> crushing the box office right now. Like everyone wants to see Spider Man. So it's kind of interesting. These are I think we're supposed to be like big, big sci fi epics with like Tenet and Dune, and those weren't even really the ones that got people to save theaters. And the idea that you were going to save theaters and I think this came out like September of 2020. Like we were still like just coming out of uh, lockdowns and stuff. So this movie definitely suffered in the box office for just coming out in the absolutely wrong time. Mm-hmm. I don't think it suffered because it's a bad movie though. So I want to go over the cast a little bit. We have a uh, John David Washington, who is a uh, Denzel Washington's son is uh, plays the protagonist in this. That's... Is he actually, I, yeah, he is, I yeah. didn't even know that. Yeah. Uh, I think he maybe got it. The, the last thing I th- think he like really broke out and was that black Klansman movie he did yeah i saw that which i, I like i like it's fine and i and i watch anything adam driver's in so yeah. i thought it was a fine movie mm-hmm. uh but he plays the protagonist and that's not because he's the protagonist of the film that is his character's name uh that was, that was really dumb to find out i did not love that uh you have robert pattinson who plays neil elizabeth debecky who plays cat kenneth brana who plays Sater, and then jefferson hall who plays well-dressed man if you look in the credits, that's what it says. <laughs> I just thought it was a fun little bit, so I wanted to add that in. Uh, but yeah, give me your first impression of this. What do you think of this film? I think of it as a guided tour of spectacle. Um, I love that description, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm a, I'll have some controversial opinions on what I think is necessary for the construction of this movie. But I'm starting to think that most movies are like this like anything that's big like like you like even with um uh spider-man i don't think that the dialogue is necessary um i think it's all about the the uh visual aspects of everything like it's it's the same the same sort of thing like do i need david attenborough's narration to planet earth no it's just everything still works on its own. It's just a little sugar for your ice cream. That's a really, I like that comparison a lot. Like, yeah, Dave Radenborough is amazing and I think brings a great quality to those, but you're still seeing something so spectacular on screen that yeah, it's probably fine without it. I, I like that. I like that comparison a lot. Yeah. So all you really need is like some framing things to keep everything kind of engaged. That's why I think like there are like about five lines of dialogue that are necessary here. And, Beyond that, I couldn't care less. I don't think that it's not one of those movies where you get to the end and I'm struck by whatever twist he's come up with or uh, how the plot has moved this direction. It's really more about blowing up a building in both backwards and forwards time, which I just will not think about because the moment I think about it, like, wow, my my head really hurts. Right. That's, that's not that's not how that would work at all. Do you want to hear my first for fun fact of the, yes. of the episode so that is actually all captured in frame there's i think there's a very small amount of visual effects used to kind of eliminate some of the dust that came up during that shot mm-hmm. but it is two one-third scale buildings that they built they filmed it one time with the bottom being blown out and then they filmed it one time again with the top being blown out and then they just stitched the, the two shots together in post to Ooh. achieve that it being rebuilt and then collapsing again and then when you play it in reverse it's obviously the opposite way but that's like all in frame. The only visual effects aspect of that is is 
they were like clearing up some dust so you could like see the explosion better. That's wild. That's exactly what I mean by I don't care about what's actually happening because it's not possible. It's not even plausible, but it is so cool to watch. Yeah, just the spectacle of it certainly like makes this movie, I think, worth watching to me. Mm-hmm. And, and I love, there's just so much stuff about it and we'll get into it more. That is just so practical. Like there, I think I read that something like 250 visual effects shots and they said like typically romantic comedies average like three to 400. So this has, this has fewer visual effects shots than uh, I think like Batman was around like 500 that he did. Interstellar was around uh-huh. 400. So this is like in terms of, I think the only film that Chris Nolan's done that's like bigger budget that was less visual effects shots was Dunkirk. Which isn't really a big sci-fi movie, so it's fine that it doesn't. Yeah, work. but it's so many war things. I would yeah. think that it would have as, I mean, at least as many as The Dark Knight. Right. But it just, it is fascinating to me. Like, there's no green screen used at all in this movie. Huh. It, like, there's none of it, which is fascinating to me because it feels like it's just, that's how you make movies now, especially if you want to have visual effects in them. So Yeah, especially, like, if you really want to see where the future of filmmaking likely is, like, watch the uh, um, documentary on uh, Disney Plus about the making of The Mandalorian. That's wild. Oh, that like big projected screen mm-hmm. that kind of changed perspective as the camera moves. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, that stuff is really cool. So the fact that this is all mostly a, a practical movie, which is weird to say in any context of a right. Christopher Nolan film, <laughs> right? Um, that's that's really cool. Uh, so I guess my my initial thoughts on it were, I think Christopher Nolan does a good job of tricking you into thinking he's made some like high concept sci-fi, when really the only thing that kind of is trippy about this is the the way they treat time. And it's kind of a different variation on what you see where you kind of get a time machine, you pick and choose where you want to go. The time travel works differently in this. And I agree with you. It's like, it feels like if you kind of think about it too much, it is like, it makes your head hurt. Towards the beginning, the way the entropy of like one of the bullets works is being explained to the protagonist and kind of the, the professor or doctor who's working on it. She's just like, don't think about it too hard. And that's really, I think, how the audience should... It was kind of a nod to the audience. Like, it's not the, it's not really the point of this. It's just kind of a fun quirk. It's kind of a... It's a cool element that we're going to use later in the movie to have some really cool action set pieces and stuff like that. It's just kind of a wrinkle into the movie. I wouldn't really call it the point of the movie. And it's better if you just kind of don't think about it. Yeah, there's a lot of terms that get thrown around, like the, the bootstrap paradox. The I actually don't know if they use bootstrap here, but grandfather paradox, which is a similar type of uh, paradox. Um I can't remember some of the other ones that were there, but basically their um, opinions on those things were out like uh, in interviews. They said, you know, we're the point is not that these things are plausible or possible. It's just giving you framing for what what the world is that we've created. Right, right. So like I said, so it has this element to it. So it feels like it's this really mind bending, high concept sci fi. But if you really just go through and if you listen, especially just the dialogue, which I will admit is sometimes hard to hear. There's no ambiguity to what is actually happening in the story. You're pretty much told why you're meeting this person, why you're going to this area, why you need to do this mission. You're told exactly what the story is. It just has this really cool element within the film that tricks you into thinking, oh man, Crystal Nolan makes these really intense, high-concept sci-fi. The same way I think people kind of get lost in Interstellar, which we talked about. That movie feels like it's really high-concept sci-fi. Yeah. And it's really not. It's a pretty simple story. Honestly. Well, yeah, but I think Interstellar, like they actually went through the like they went through and did the math and they made sure that everything was um, would work in a physical sense. Or at least it was uh, in um, some conjecture that this is a possible state of the world. Whereas here they were like, this is the movie we want to make. Are there terms that fit this? Right. I guess uh, Chris Nolan actually had Kip Thorne back again to oh, did as, he like, really? a consultant and i think the the rules were much more fast and loose than kind of what because he had set kind of parameters he's like if i'm going to be involved with interstellar i want the science to make sense mm-hmm. and i think because the time travel was more conceptual than possible kip thorne was kind of eased back on how how people can use physics and stuff so it, i thought it was interesting that he he still brought kip thorne back to be like his consultant on the film yeah that's funny i feel like I feel like Kip Thorne had very little input on this movie. He's <laughs> probably like, yeah, neat idea. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like, I Here, can't help you. <laughs> here's the terms that, that you're just absolutely breaking. There's nothing right. left when like when you think about the, the problem with all of of all of the paradoxes, you're hitting it head on and then just ignoring any ramifications. Right. Which I think is fine for this movie, because yeah. I don't if you want to watch a time travel movie that really makes you think and will get you confused. Just go watch Primer because the point of Primer is the time travel. 
Mm-hmm. That is not the point of this movie. It's like I said, an element of it. So yeah, it, again, like this is not. I, I I don't. There are very few movies where the point of anything is time travel. Um, I, even Back to the Future, the point is not time travel. It is just a narrative device. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a that's a good way to put it. Uh, the last thing I want to say, kind of my initial thought of this is, I've seen it a couple times now. I watched it one night, and then I immediately like rewound it and watched it again. And the whole thing made a lot more sense to me because I wasn't getting caught up on moving to all these places and being introduced to all these new characters and then obviously having to deal with time travel to be able to just watch it again. And I've already absorbed the spectacle of it. So now I can just like really focus on the story here. And that's kind of when I realized it's you're basically told everything. And so it's really not an incredibly hard film to track. It just feels like once you're not distracted by people moving backwards and things blowing up and those weird turnstiles that make your head hurt. It, it actually it, it made the movie much more enjoyable. It was one of the few that I was like, oh, like I got a lot more out of it on a second viewing for sure. Okay, so I, I, I did not think that I would get that much more out of a second viewing. So I did not watch it again. I've only seen it once. And I really just wanted to bring that opinion to this and have you tell me what you found on your second viewing. Yeah, I like I said, it's like I'm, you know, like uh, Neil's got that little badge on his backpack, you know, uh-huh. and you realize it's him at the end and he's always been like a part of the story. So like I wasn't distracted by that anymore because I already knew like his outcome and how his character played a role. So it was, then it was just more like it was really trying to grasp the really the turnstiles and how that worked and how you have to see yourself going into it and coming out of it. Otherwise, it's not going to work out well for you. It means you never made it out. Right. So it was just more it was really tackling the the time travel aspect of it to make that like more cogent and make more sense in my head. Uh, but like narratively, I was like, I was like, okay, I got this movie. So that was like part of the second viewing is I was just like, okay, like maybe the more technical aspects of it, which are, it's weird to call them technical because they feel so, uh, untechnical and that they aren't real. Like these are not real laws of nature that we're dealing with. Right. So it's, they, they seem like kind of ambiguous and you don't really grasp exactly how the time works in this. So it's just kind of nice to sit back and not need to worry about that a ton and try to like soak in what else is going on in the story to be like, oh, why are they doing these missions and all this stuff? So that's how I felt the second time. So I was like, I'm not as worried about figuring out time travel anymore because that's not really the point here. Okay. Okay. So that was my approach in the first viewing. Was like, I didn't care because um, of, uh, of how their interpretation of time travel was going to work. I was just going to watch things and just assume, okay, things are moving backwards. And that's the point of this movie. So yeah, I, I'd be interested to see if there are things that other things that I pick up on a second viewing, just because there are so many things moving around in, um, you know, different timelines. But I ultimately think that that's the way you need to watch this movie. Like if you think about it, if you think about it at all, you're going to miss a lot of things. So if you go into it with the idea that none of the plot points actually matter, then this movie is it, it accomplishes what it wants to. Which yeah. is why, which is why I say like I don't really care that the mix is so bad, and why Christopher Nolan, um, and why like ultimately I think that Christopher Nolan's opinion is correct in saying like he doesn't care wh- wh- how his mix uh, is either, because it's actually like a really like sound in film is already difficult to begin with. Like that was something I struggled with in school, not necessarily struggled with, but you needed to know where you were going to exhibit your film because your mix depends on the sound system for that. So you can listen all you want to your headphones on your computer and think, okay, wow, my film sounds great. Right. And then you actually get to a theater and it sounds like garbage because Mm -hmm. you're talking about different frequencies and different uh, perspectives of where the speakers are going to are actually located. So that's already a problem when you're talking about uh, a Hollywood movie that's being shown in hundreds of thousands of different uh, audio setups. Um, But it's getting worse now for a number of reasons that have to do with um, just the logistics of recording sound. A lot of uh, a lot of uh, acting nuances. Like if you think about like a lot of older movies, there was a lot more yelling or shouting or clear speaking because that was how you got good sound. And now we want things to sound more realistic. So there's a lot of whispered stuff. That reminds me so much of like Casablanca. Yeah. Where it's like it's very clear everything that everyone's saying because that's how you told the story back then. And now you yeah, you kind of want more more out of your sound, more richness out of the score and everything. Mm -hmm. So. That definitely rings true for, yeah, something that came out in the 40s like Casablanca where you need clear speaking. Yeah, the further we get from the stage play, the more 
problematic that sound mixing is, especially when we want to add to when we want to add music to everything. When you add music to everything, it makes it so much more complicated. Right. Because if you already didn't get good quality sound from the the vocals, you can't just dub those back in. It's very obvious that they don't that they're not they weren't recorded at the same time. But I don't but there are like and like when they do do that, like uh, I noticed this uh, most recently in Christmas Vacation. There's a part where Clark turns around and you hear him speaking. And the only reason it's there is because he's not. you don't see his face. You don't see that his lips aren't moving. They just wanted to add another joke there or something got ruined with the sound or something. Right. But they're of a very different quality just in terms of how you record dub. So it's going to pop in a certain way when you pop when you actually play that into a scene where they are speaking. And it's also just not going to match the lips. So... You just have to roll with the fact that no one is going to hear this whispered dialogue. Right, right. So we've, like you said, you've kind of covered the sound. Uh, I want to move into the score. This is the, Hans Zimmer did not do the score for this. I think it's the first film since The Prestige that Christopher Nolan and Hans Zimmer didn't work on together. I think so. Uh, Ludwig Garrison did the score for this. And he has done all the music for The Mandalorian. He did uh, a book of Boba Fett that's out. He's done all the, uh, the score for that. Uh, he did Venom and Black Panther more recently, and he's doing the score for Black Panther: Rise of Wakanda or something. I think are they actually making a new one? What are they doing with that? I'm not sure. I think they're going to have the Black Panther's younger sister take over the role of Black Panther since you know Chadwick Boseman passed. Uh, right. So I'm not, I'm not sure what they're going to do with that, but uh, but he's doing the score for that. And so this guy is like, I mean, he's not like out of nowhere. He, he seems like a pretty hot commodity. He's, he's done pretty big stuff recently, and I actually I. For not being Hans Zimmer, it's still like really big at cer- certain points. Mm. I love how it's used, especially in like that uh, like highway robbery scene. It's like a it's synth beats that are played backwards, which really fits the theme of the whole movie. And so there's really big parts of the score that really pump up the scenes, and I love them. And then there's other parts where I'm just like, it, it feels like it's it's almost nothing, and it almost feels like why do you even put a score in there? The part where the protagonist is fighting himself at the end of the movie uh-huh. for you would the say second the time. second time. There's almost no score to it, and it's really boring for what I think should be like a really big scene, and it should feel like something matters here. And I think you need to have the score pumped up higher in that area. I was, I was listening, and I was like, wow, it's kind of just, it's kind of just two guys wrestling around, and you hear the scuffling of their boots, and there's not really a lot going on to make me feel more out of this scene. So the fact that he had that highway robbery scene feel so like big and robust, and then there's another scene that I think should feel big, and it really fell flat in terms of the score. But overall, I liked it. I love like the hip hop aspects to it. I think it's great. Yeah, I do love playing. Uh, I mean, playing with stuff in in uh, backwards time in film is a lot of fun. It's very easy. So I was thinking, I thought about that a lot when I was watching this movie. Like things being played backwards. Like ah, that's one of the one of the first techniques that we played with as, right. uh, in school was just. Uh, <laughs> all you have to do is just reverse the film strip and then suddenly things are in, are in reverse. Right. So, um, but you do, it is also upside down. So you need to reproject it, um, in order to, yeah, don't think about oh, it. Dude. Yeah. That didn't even occur to me. Yeah. So yeah. When you, uh, play with things like when you're doing actual film, like you have to, there's a little bit more planning that needs to go into uh, oh. the post-production of it, but it's so much fun when you actually see the image, like uh, playing with things in uh, backwards is, is so much fun. And I liked that, how they re- represented that in the music. There were a few things, there were a few times where um, I don't know. I, I just don't understand the, the sonic quality of playing something backwards, why it's so different, Yeah, but it's so cool. I love that. It's just a texture. Yeah, and I, I guess another thing he had done is he had recorded Christopher Nolan breathing and then kind of modulated that, and he worked that into the score as well, it's apparently to add some more, make them, make some scenes feel more tense by like having kind of like heavy breathing in the background. Huh. I didn't actually pick that up, but it's like something I read, and I, I think I, I watched some like behind-the-scenes stuff about it, so I'll have to go back and listen to it again. But I think it's really interesting. He, he seems to, uh, Gorenson seems to play around a lot, like kind of with different... Uh, way can modulate and change the sound and i think it all worked really well and it's definitely a departure from Hans simmer but i thought it still worked well in this all right are you ready for another fun fact oh i'm ready for another fun fact so you've talked about the music kind of playing in reverse mm-hmm. i guess the way they also filmed a lot of the fight scenes is they would have the actors choreographed moving forward in time and then they would play it they would shoot the scene again with the actors choreographed moving backwards in time and then they would cut those scenes together to give that effect of like someone moving forward in time, someone in reverse time. Cause I think 
Wow. That that fight between the antagonist and himself is like it's visually like really exciting. You mean the protagonist. Oh, that's it. Yeah, the yeah the uh, the scene between the protagonist and himself is a very visually exciting scene, and it kind of throws you off while you're watching it. Like there's a part where he's squirming on the ground, but he's moving forward, even though his body would tell your brain that he should be pushing backwards and getting away. Mm-hmm. It's just it's very visually interesting, and I think it's really cool the idea that you could choreograph someone doing the motions in reverse. And then splicing that all together, I think, is really interesting. And there's also uh, a lot of the actors learn to speak their dialogue backwards. That way, when it's played forward in time, it all still makes sense. I think that's kind of a weird way to do it. You could have just had them say it and then played the audio backwards and edited it into the film that way. I don't know that it was necessary for them to learn to speak backwards, but it certainly adds to like the authenticity of the movie. Well, they probably had to, they probably had to learn it that way just so their lips matched up. That's a good point. I mean, but if they're still moving backwards, I, yeah, thinking about just how to shoot this is that in and of, if it, it, that in and of itself is a headache. I just again, it it really speaks to like Christopher Nolan as a director, how he likes to just he wants it all to be on screen, and he doesn't want to do like a trick to kind of get whatever point across he wants. He he like wants his actors to do it. He wants the people watching to really see it. And the fact that you'd go so far as to have your actors talk backwards, I think, is amazing to me. Yeah, I really want to go revisit Memento because I remember thinking Memento was uh, was mind blowing when I saw it back in uh, college. Um, and I think that his that's his, Chris Ronald as well. Correct? Yeah, that's right. that was his. Uh, I don't think it was his debut, but it was one of them. And that that whole film is uh, told in chunks, moving forward, like the time is moving forward, but. Each uh, subsequent chunk is a little bit further uh, back in time. Right. So it's told like everything backwards, basically. So obviously there was a precursor to Tenet in terms of... Um, oh, they're in the Nolanverse. Yeah, in the, in the, Nol- in the <laughs> Nolanverse of ideas. Um, I just feel like all of his ideas are more suited for these smaller, smaller scale um, sci-fi films because once you get up to the big budget you need to make it a spectacle right and if you make it a spectacle it's no longer about the idea so i wonder how much memento holds up for that reason um or otherwise like maybe like i i'll i'll watch it and be like wow this is his, this is just the same as tenet there are lots of problems may as well just make it a big budget film and enjoy it right i guess thinking back on it because i haven't watched memento in a minute but when i think about it i think like ooh, what a smart movie that was but maybe it's as kind of obvious as a lot of Christopher Nolan movies it just yeah. didn't have the same budget you know? yeah exactly yeah like we've said before like he's the uh, he's a frat boy's idea of a smart director uh, I wonder if Memento is the same way <laughs> which sounds like such a backhanded compliment but I still I love Christopher Nolan and it's weird yeah. I don't think he'll ever go back to making small budget movies oh of course because he's just the only director it feels like who just gets to do whatever he wants like this is an original film like he he, he helped write it and it's same yeah. with like Interstellar like that's like he was a you know he's a producer and a writer on that he's just the only guy who gets handed 200 million dollars to kind of make his own movie it feels like so i don't i don't feel like he'll ever go back to something on the same scale as memento as exciting as that might be yeah that would be cool though like if he were able to or revisit the idea of memento but with a much bigger budget so i wonder what you think of the relationship between the protagonist and neil i gained a lot more appreciation for it on my second viewing the reveal is that neil has been friends with the protagonist for for years now and the protagonist is just now becoming friends with neil and i i really love how they treat that because neil just kind of shows up and he knows that like um the protagonist doesn't drink and that protagonist says he prefers like soda water and neil's like no you don't because neil knows him and when he's first introduced, I think on your first viewing, you're kind of like, where did this guy come from? Why does he, he it, it feels like there's like this nonchalantness about him, like this quality of comfort that he brings, like someone that feels like someone you would know. And it's not revealed until later that, of course, Neil has known him forever. And so on the second viewing, I really liked their relationship a lot. Mm. And it was kind of fun, the idea that like someone is your best friend and the other person is like, not quite there yet but you you know the outcome in the end it was kind of interesting like the way neil operates in this because he like i said he kind of appears out of nowhere but he seems to fit in kind of right away and i think that's supposed to portray the fact that he has known the protagonist and it should feel comfortable and it should feel like they're friends yeah that is interesting um that's one part i didn't uh, i didn't pick up on um i will say i struggled for a moment uh when they were trying to save uh satyr's wife um, by going to the turnstile in Oslo, 
right at the end of the movie like why is neil going along with this it's just one woman and none of this matters but the fact that he knows so much about time from what he'd learned uh from the protagonist right um and the fact that he saw them go through the turnstile that's the reason he didn't question it because what happened happened i'm not even like logistically it doesn't matter because we know it's going to be fine was a really interesting wrinkle when you think about it yeah but uh otherwise yeah it's a it was a dumb plot point um before that right i just like i I thought robert pattinson did a did a great job in this for kind of the the role he plays as kind of sidekick i thought he i thought he brought a kind of a charming quality and he was trying to explain like kind of big ideas in kind of an easy way. And so I kind of had like, I like how he functioned in the movie where it was like, it's kind of like, it's a lot, it's a lot. So just don't really think about it. But this is like the basic idea of all this time and how it operates. So I, I like how he functioned in the story. And I, I really like the relationship between uh, him and the protagonist. Mm. Yeah. And I really don't think that any of the characters matter. I don't think that you needed these big uh, name actors. Uh, a, obviously we didn't need uh, Michael Caine. Well, you need him because it's a Christopher Nolan movie. <laughs> yeah. Like, he has to be in it. Like, I get that. <laughs> um, plays such a small role, but you know, like, he just picked up the phone and called Michael Caine. He's like, I'm doing a movie. I need you for 10 seconds. Yeah, exactly. I need you for one day. I'll buy you lunch and you can eat it on set. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> so funny because they meet at like a, they're having lunch. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, because especially like for John David Washington, I... Um, like he's the equivalent of a Pokédex to me. Like the like just speaks everything very robotically and just like a Pokédex gives you facts about Pokémon that aren't actually physically possible. Like I don't remember I don't know uh if you remember any of the facts like from Pokédex is like Oh, like, no, I know. Yeah, like if a uh, Charmander's tail like uh gets doused in water, it'll die and like I mean, which is so morbid. You, yeah, exactly. But then you use like moves like surf which is just a giant <laughs> yeah. wall of water. And so it's really just the idea of world building, but they have nothing to do with the experience, yeah. which is like everything that he says. I don't really, it's it's just about the way this character is working in the world. None of it affects your experience of it, which is again, why I think the dialogue is inane. Like, yeah, like I suppose I, I get where you're coming from. I think the reason the dialogue is like that is because you have a kind of a big, time travel concept and so you need just the dialogue to just say exactly what's happening which is like you said a pokedex like he's just telling you literally exactly what's happening mm-hmm. that's how his character operates in terms of dialogue it's just to tell you like we're meeting this person in this place for this reason because the bullets have the alloy that comes from india and that's why we're going there and that's basically how the whole movie works that's how he that's how he operates in this movie is yeah. to tell the audience like this is why we're going here to meet this person for this reason just just stay with us. Like, even though this all this other stuff going on, this is what's happening. And I think that works fine in this movie. Yeah. And that's why, that's why to me, I think the dialogue is important because I think you do need to have that as like kind of a steadying hand to keep you on track on what's going on because otherwise I think you can get kind of lost in the sauce. You're moving to all these different places and talking to all these characters. And so I, I kind of, I don't, I don't have a ton of trouble hearing the dialogue. I wish it was mixed better, but it's still all is fine to me. So the the idea that like that like makes this movie unwatchable, I don't agree with. But yeah, I, still I don't think, agree with that yeah. either. I just think the dialogue is important to keep the viewer on track because I think you can get lost in this movie. I think you could if this was one of the first movies you ever saw. I think the familiarity of <laughs> <laughs> if you're just a little baby. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, maybe, yeah, that's not really what I mean. But yeah, like, yeah, if you were a child, this might be difficult. <laughs> I love that. Um, but I feel like, yeah, if you were an adult that didn't didn't have a concept of narrative, then this would be very hard to follow. But the familiarity of the structure of narrative in all of our movies is so similar that you don't. That's that's why you don't need the dialogue is because you understand how everything flows in terms of plot points that whatever they're saying or doing doesn't matter. It's like, Oh, something's about to go here. And we can tell from all of these other movements, uh, from all of these other, uh, elements that something is about to happen. Someone's about to die or this person is relevant or all of a sudden we realize that it's Priya, you know, the, the wife of the man that they're, uh, trying to go for that. Like the arms dealer. Yeah. Yeah. She's the big baddie and we don't need any, anything uh spoken there to understand why how that actually works and how that dynamic is so that's why um i say that it's just a 
it's just a quirk of how we tell our stories now that we're getting to the point where we don't need the words um, because it's just so baked into every story that we see. And I think you're right, because if you view this movie as a spectacle, which is what it is, then to me it operates the same way like a, a Marvel movie does. Yeah, it's also more enjoyable too. The fact that this that the ending is ultimately unsatisfying and we have a character named the protagonist, um, it's just so it's so dumb and it's almost like <laughs> especially like when like he like like he has like his own like self realization like I am the protagonist of my own story. It has nothing to do with volition or the idea that we have like um, you know there are big uh, time travel concepts that we've talked about in in, in uh, for movies like Edge of Tomorrow, like what it means uh, in um, a time stream sense, like whether you actually have any control over your actions. Um, that's not what he's talking about when he's saying the protagonist. He's just like, I'm in a movie, right? And I'm gonna win because I'm the protagonist, and this is why you're at this movie because you know I'm the protagonist, even though I'm spelling it out for you because it should be pretty obvious by this point. It's like, it's it's panderingly cynical. Right. Sometimes it feels like when they say things like that. So that's why I don't. I think that's why we're we're most frustrated by that is because right. we're not that stupid that we need to call our character to the protagonist for us to understand that he's the protagonist. Right. And you, you talked about volition and like free will. I think of all the characters, he's the one who has the least amount of free will because it's revealed later that this whole operation was his idea. He set it in motion. It's his temporal pincer. So that means he will in the future carry out whatever actions lead to what happens in the film. Right. It's just all going to happen off screen, obviously. But like, he's actually probably the one who has like the least autonomy because he will do whatever it takes. Like whatever has happened has happened is what they keep saying throughout the movie. So he has already done whatever leads him to the climax of this film. So he's he's actually the person with the least amount of free will. So to have that line about like this is my story and I'm the protagonist, you're right. It does feel like it. It kind of really doesn't fit thematically with this character or this movie at all. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, yeah. This movie is wild for those reasons. Like, why are you trying to make something? Like, why are you trying to say something that it isn't? Like, I just want to see, I, I also think of like the end scene, like that whole operation where they're storming that bunker. I don't see a single, um, like, uh, uh like enemy in that whole scene. You're right. I, I, I think you see a couple in windows and stuff like briefly, but it yeah. feels like it, it doesn't really feel like they're fighting anyone. Yeah. I and, certainly agree. And literally every explosion happens in reverse. Yeah. Every bullet flies in reverse. Because it looks cool. Yeah. It's just like, it's not giving me a sense of conflict. It's just like everything is going to be super obvious and in reverse because that's the point of this movie. You that's hear, what Tenet is. Do you want to hear another fun fact? Oh, I'd love to. So, you know, the the team that is moving forward in time has the red armbands on. The team that is moving in backward in time have blue armbands on mm -hmm. and i guess the idea was to post to represent uh, you know like the doppler effect like red shift and blue oh. shift so it's supposed to be a celestial body like a star mm -hmm. as it's moving away from you it would have a, a red hue to it it would be have a red shift and as it's moving towards you it would have a, be a blue shift so that was the idea is the people moving backward in time are moving towards you the people moving forward in time are wearing red and they're moving away from you. That's so cool. And for anyone that's confused, Doppler effect is for the frequencies, any frequency, so sound or light. Right, right. I just thought it was a fun little... That is cool. I just, didn't I didn't catch that because I didn't think that this movie was very smart, so they weren't going to do any smart I think, things. I, I imagine that's like, that's got to be Kip Thorne's influence. Be like, you know what? Don't make it like green and yellow armbands. Make it blue and red because of the Doppler effect. Yeah. I'd like, that, to, I'd like to think that was his addition to this film. Yeah. I, I, if it's Christopher Nolan's, then you, you get it. You're starting to understand that science has to work in some places. Right. But otherwise, yeah, that's a, that's a really neat fun fact. I'm, I'm digging these fun facts this time. I, I'm full of them on this one because I, I still I found this film like pretty fascinating. And it feels like there's so much stuff that went into it. Like you said, maybe not to create a smart film, but it feels like it, the technical side of it, it felt like there was a lot. Yeah, this is another one of those uh, films. I, I guess I, I've never really said it explicitly. I told someone else that, um, that or, oh yeah, I told Michael um, that uh, this movie was too short. And he was like, it's two and a half it's hours. It's two and a half hours long. And I was like, no, no, no. What I mean by that is if you're going to have every single plot point uh, preserved, you need to have more time in between those to make this a really good story, which is why Dune is five hours. This is this movie needs to be a miniseries. 
or like a two season uh, TV show because there's so much working here. You really could make a very, very fascinating TV show. Um, I think like what something like Quantum Break explores this idea too. Um, not quite to the same degree or the same type of rules, but yeah, like that's that's you have so many pieces moving out around here that we haven't we don't have characters we have caricatures and i don't care about the end because of that well yeah if you're gonna name one of your characters the protagonist <laughs> it's not really a character like, <laughs> so i get that one character i kind of want to talk about is Seder, and i also want to share how they came up with the name for that and also for the name of this film uh tenet hmm. there's a place called Seder square that was in the ruins of pompeii and it was a Imagine like a five by five grid. The top line spells Sator, which is S-A-T-O-R. The next line is Arepo, A-R-E-P-O. The middle line is Tenet, T-E-N-E-T. The fourth line is Opera, O-P-E-R-A. And then the bottom line is Rotas, R-O-T-A-S. And this is all Latin. I'm sure I said all those wrong. The idea is it's a palindrome. So if you read it forward to back, it would still say the same thing. The other really cool thing about it huh. is if you read it in columns, Sator would be the first column and it would still spell S-A-T-O-R. And if you move, and then if you read it uh. backwards, it would say Rotas. And then if you move to the second column, which would start with the A from Sator, it would then, if you move from top to bottom, it would spell Arepo. And then the third column would spell Tenet up and down. But I just thought it was fascinating. Like, that's how they came up with some of the idea for the character names. And then the title of the film came from this Seder Square in Pompeii, where yeah. it's like you could read it forward and backwards. You could read it up and down. It's a really neat idea. So if you, if you have time, you want to get out some graph paper and write it all out, you can figure out what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, I'm, seeing it, I'm seeing it fairly well, so, which is unusual. I'm not very good at, at descriptions like that, but I can tell what you're saying. I, I wonder if there are images like of it, though. Did you find any images of it? Oh, like looked it up? Yeah, like the, the actual grid. Oh, no, I just kind of visualized it because I, I figured after reading it, I kind of got it. Uh, I wonder if there is like the actual ruins must still exist. Yeah. Otherwise, we wouldn't know about this. But yeah, so I just thought that was a super interesting part. Like I said, I'm full of fun facts on this episode. And the idea that that's how they got kind of your villain's name is from this this Seder Square. And then mm -hmm. also the title for the film, Tenet. But I want to talk about Seder then. <laughs> I I kind of like the idea of him just being right place, right time. He gets all this gold. He's able to make his make his way through the new Russia, and he becomes kind of that uh that middleman between the future and what's happening currently. And part of what I don't understand is the motivation of the people of the future. I understand Seder's role in it, but I wonder what what do you think? We've talked before about reciprocal altruism, mm -hmm. and so the idea that someone in the future would do something intentionally to ruin the past and in turn destroy everyone just doesn't feel like a a real viable plan or like a real plot point which is what the story essentially hinges on is that the future is mad that the temperature went up and their seas rose and there are earthquakes and famine and their their plan is to okay you know what like if we're gonna die we're also gonna take all the people in the past with with us so i wonder like what do you think of how that that motivation operates in this story because I find it to be really strange. Honestly, I feel like they just made up that plot point because I think if you reverse the entropy of everything, the the past wouldn't get destroyed because if the past got destroyed, then there is no future. They're they're equally as destroyed. So I think they just had to make it sound like reversing the entropy in the future or reversing all of Earth's entropy would kill people just to make a relevant plot point. I think they just needed t things to tie together because to me, it doesn't make a lot of physical sense. I guess I thought of it as just all of time will start moving backwards. So eventually people will end up becoming children and then they'll become infants and then they'll not be born anymore. And then that same thing will happen to their parents. So I thought, I thought of it, not necessarily that it, it causes some kind of cataclysmic event that just incinerates people or something like that. I just thought of it as people will be trapped in, their own timeline moving backwards until they no longer exist. And that's what would eventually kind of end earth and humanity. But the idea that like the future would want revenge on the past is just such an odd concept to me. Yeah. And I, and I just don't think that humans would operate that way. Yeah. Like, you'd kind of be like, you know what? We got the shorthand and we're going to die now. But to be like, you know what? Let's kill everyone else too. I just, I never got that. I thought you could have, I thought there was a more clever 
enemy in this movie that could have existed rather yeah, than th- the future being mad. Yeah, I think so too. But yeah, I just, I don't think that's what happened. I think everyone would just, all of time would now move backwards. Um, but your, but your cognitive sense of that would still be intact. So you're still going to live a new life. It's just the rest of the world is now moving in, in, uh, in a different, uh, entropic state, which is, I, I, yeah, I still think that there, I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with what they're doing. I think it's a great solution if these are the physics that we've laid out in this world and those are real. Right. Um, but yeah, uh, setting up the future as being like angry, like that, that seemed kind of goofy. Yeah. The, the future as the antagonist is odd to me. It, it's, it, it's also, it's just really weird to think because Seder really isn't the bad guy, really. He's just a man. prophet. Yeah. And he does say something interesting. He talks about, he's like, I, my biggest regret is bring, bringing his child into a world I knew was ending. And it's like, I, I, I don't really, for that character, he seems really pragmatic. And he seems to know what he's doing, especially because he has all this information from the future. So it really didn't make any sense to me that he had a kid and that the kid is kind of this really, it's like what a lot of the story hinges on is the protagonist getting Kat out of a marriage. That way she can still have her son. And that ends up playing a huge role in the movie. So the idea that the son exists, period, is odd to me. Yeah. Honestly, the entire, there are so many plot points that are driven by that relationship and the dynamic of that relationship is built on contrived plot points, which it makes it really hard to understand why any of this matters. And like, like his hold over her being the fact that, um, she, uh, identified like a painting that was like a counterfeit painting. Yeah. But she, but like, she didn't like, I see that it was a forgery. And because of that, like she, he's saving her from embarrassment and now he just gets to abuse her and keep, she can't leave because yeah i don't really understand that it's it's a terrible way of setting up like the fact you could just say that she's that he's abusive you don't need those like all of those other i guess you just need the painting just so you go to oslo or the drawing the goya whatever to go to oslo like that's that's the only reason i think they needed it that way they could have their big action set piece where they run a 747 into a building i think that's why that that's why that plot point exists. Yeah, exactly. And I'm getting I'm getting hung up on details. I this movie is not about details. No, but but I think you bring up a good point. It's not that storyline or that plot isn't explained or hard to understand. It's just it's explained ex- so explicitly that you're like, "Wait, why would why is this in the movie? Like, I don't really care about <laughs> yeah. the counterfeit painting. Just because you explained to me how they're going to get it, the whole operation leading up to it, just because you had a cool action set piece doesn't mean I cared about what happened, you know?" Yeah, no. that's how a lot of this movie kind of feels. It's like, yeah, you told me, but like, why? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I don't know why I brought that up because, of like, really, I feel the same way. Like, it didn't, it doesn't change my perception of this movie because I already knew that none of these characters or dynamics mattered because they were just trying to make a human story about things moving backwards in time, right? Which is not what happened. It's not a human story, but it's just like we make stories of humans because they're easier to direct and this isn't an animated movie because if this was an animated movie, it'd be on Netflix and no one would ever watch it. No. I'd like to see an animated version of this. You could get really wacky with this Yeah, it'd be crazy. It'd be so... Well, I mean, like, I guess his other movies would have been better served to be animation if they had more uh, um, CGI than this one, but still, I think that... I think that the... The possibility of animation is so underutilized in terms of what we consider a big budget film. Yeah, we could do so many cool things with animation because it's so it's it's much easier to actually draw those things instead of film them. But we just decide not to um, because we don't think of them as the the same quality within the medium. Oh yeah, I mean, like I I talked about the building that blows up on the top and the bottom. How that's a one third scale building. Yeah, and they built it twice, and then they had a third one just in case. So like, just imagine the amount of budget that goes into it, the amount of prep to you know get all the all the timing right, the explosives, everything set to pull the shot off. It, you could have a good animator draw that out, and it'd probably still look really good. It'd be really interesting to watch. So I I do like the idea of I would love to see more animated stuff, even like spin off things. I I think you could. We talked about uh, Nightmare Wolf, which is a Witcher spin off. And while we didn't love that, I like yeah. the idea of more stuff existing in these worlds. So I, I they should make a tenant series. I, yeah. I'd watch that for sure. I mean, what's so what's so crazy? And if uh, you want to know more of our opinions on that on uh, that movie, um, 
we we did an episode on it but yeah exactly like the that was the action that you kind of expected uh of the witcher being able to um be capable of you know he's very strong in the games like that and that movie is very stylized and um and how powerful he is and in the live action he's just like just a dude he kind of shoots some wind out of his hands it feels like yeah it's it it really misses the the scale of potential um but that was it was so forgettable it was like not even an appetizer for the live action show to be released for the second season right in in december because what that came out in like october right and it was really not and it was really more of just like a uh eh we could make this a guess yeah yeah that's how it felt it felt like it could have been a good companion piece but i never quite reached that Mm -hmm. but let's get back to tenant i want to ask you what is the point of this movie is there one and does it even matter if there is? I think, yeah, my, I've, I think I've said this multiple times now. I don't think there's a point. I don't think that uh, um, there's a story or there's there's anything here of substance. I just think it's a really cool concept of what if things moved backwards at the same time? What if some things moved backwards at the same time, some things moved forward? Um, I just feel like there are cooler stories to tell with that concept I than agree. this one. I certainly agree. I think if you could pull one real message out of this is stop climate change. Otherwise the future will get you. And, yeah. and that, we're like, yeah, it's funny how like, yeah, we're how it's both things. Like we're the ones destroying our planet right now. And then like we destroyed our planet and now we have real world consequences before the planet being destroyed of us destroying ourselves, which is man, that sentence is wild to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then again, I, I think if that is the message you pull from it, it's covered up by all of Christopher Nolan's sci-fi schlock. So did the it really... The fact that he built three buildings yeah. to blow them up. Yeah. So does it even really matter if that is the point? Does it even matter? Because Christopher Nolan doesn't even seem to think that that's the point of the movie either. It is. Like you said, it is a it is a cool concept that he gets to put a bunch of money into to like achieve a vision. So then I guess my next question is, do you think this movie accomplished what it wanted to? Yeah, I think so. Um, Because like we were saying, it's something that wants to seem like it's smart um, and be mind-bending, but with with the purpose of being entertaining. And that's all it's trying to be. I think in Interstellar, uh, there was, uh, he was trying to make a a great sci-fi epic um, about the end of humanity, like the actual end of humanity. And there are a lot of uh, human emotions at play there. And he knew what he was making there and accomplished that, I think, rather spectacularly. I think he accomplishes exactly what he wanted to here spectacularly as well. He clearly does not try and make these characters um, like meaningful. It seems like we try. he wants to try and make us care about uh, uh, Seder's wife. Um, oh, Kat? I, I, yeah. I'm not going to... Like, I don't really... I don't gravitate to her. I don't find her to be very interesting. I don't even think like the situation that she's in, uh, it doesn't like grab me. Like you said, it, she's trapped because of a counterfeit painting. Right. The un- and that's, and that's the difference here between uh tenant and interstellar in interstellar. I really harped on the fact that how realistically like the painstaking detail they went to create realism in terms of the, uh, of the physical laws that everyone was obeying heightened the emotional um, gravity of all of these situations. Here, the fact that everything is so unrealistic, we don't have any of those human qualities. I don't care about her story at all because the situation is so contrived that, um, oh, you you just, you you get the sense that, okay, the director, writer did not care about how these two characters are intertwined because that's a stupid situation. So I also don't care about how they're intertwined. It is just... For sure. Yeah, it's just a stepping stone to get us to the next place of action. And I think the movie does a good job of moving you along to the next point, which again, I, I that's what I think the goal was here, to have a cool spectacle that keeps you engaged. And for me, it did that. So so yeah, I, I don't have a lot of knocks against this movie, except that it's, again, it, it feels like it should be high-minded and it's not, but it is still, I had a lot of fun watching it. Yeah, I don't know how I want to rank it. For, I was, that, for that reason. So I, I think we're getting close to wrapping this one up then. I want to say on a, on a scale of one to 10 gold bars, where do you put this one? You know, I would, this one's so hard to rank because it, I think it does accomplish what it was trying to do, which is 
I think that's been a theme for us in the last few months, movies trying to be something that they ultimately don't end up being. So there's like a part of me that's like, do we applaud it for that reason? Should it be celebrated because it did what it wanted to? And I think like still like, yeah, it, it did what it wanted to do. It is what it uh, what it wanted to be. But I don't think that that's very good. What it is is not very good. Um, it's just slightly above average, I would say. So I'm going to put it at like a 6.2 palindromes. Oh, I was doing gold bars, but palindromes is my Oh, favorite. yeah. I forgot you actually said something. 6.2 gold bars. I like it. I like. I just like that scene a lot while the gold is falling out of the plane. Yeah. <laughs> I just think it's, it's just, like, again, it's just it's spectacular. It's and just I don't even understand why they did it. I guess so it was a less of a crime to fly a plane into, like, like, like whoa, we're not stealing the gold. Just yeah. So you guys know. It just, it just, That's how I took that to mean. I don't actually know if they actually said why they were pushing the gold out. Like a diversion is what I thought because a bunch of people would go run for the gold, I guess, instead of concentrating on the giant plane. Yeah, the <laughs> yeah, it was just ridiculous. Yeah, so so much about that stuff was just like, I almost feel like Neil's uh, discussion with the protagonist, like that part is a little dramatic. Is literally Christopher Nolan like talking to oh, <laughs> like for the sure. studio, like yeah, yeah. so want to fly a plane into a building? Okay, uh, that sounds. You know, Expensive. how big of a plane. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that part might be a little dramatic. I love that. I love that idea that that's literally his pitch to the studio and how he's going to get a 747 into a building. Uh, I feel a lot about the, a lot of the same sentiments that you do. I think it looks cool. I think it does exactly what it's trying to do. But is it like, is it this awe-inspiring, amazing movie because of that? Is it is it the movie that should have saved cinema? Like, no, it's fine. I had a lot of fun with it. And again, I love I love going and looking up all the practical effects and all the behind-the-scenes stuff. So for me, this hit a lot of those things. And uh, and I, it's visually cool. I, like I said, I like the score in it. Uh, so I, I put this at like a 7. I still liked it a lot. It mm. just, like I said, it's not a, it's not going to like blow you away in terms of narrative. It's going to blow you away in terms of visuals, I yeah. think. It's just a, a slightly smarter Bond movie because now those are so derivative that who cares about whatever story is going on there. Christopher Nolan said that, that he's a big fan of Bond films, and he kind of wanted to make his own sci-fi version of a Bond film. So that's neat that you picked that up. Yeah, yeah there you go. That's kind of what he went for. Yeah, well, come on, Bond. Like, they, you need to update and make something interesting. I know, yeah. Just the same thing over and over again. Right. Uh, so yeah, with that, we're wrapping this one up. Uh, I just want to thank Calvin for being on. I thought this was a good one to talk about, so I'm glad this was suggested to us and we finally got to it. People have been asking my opinion on this for a long time because they're like, I'm conflicted. Right. And or I didn't like it or I don't understand the hype around it. And yeah, I uh, I, I feel like I've let a lot of people down by saying like, yeah, I kind of watched it once and yeah, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but thanks for being on. And uh, you can find our podcast on any platform that you want to find one on like iTunes or Spotify. Uh, we also upload all these to YouTube. So go ahead and check out our channel. Uh, tell us what we're doing well. Tell us what we're doing wrong. And if you have any suggestions on movies we should do in the future, uh, feel free to leave that in the comments. And with that, thank you for listening to Now This Is Podcasting.